Juan Carlos, shall we? I love that. I say it and things happen. If only life was like that. Hey everybody, I'm Kai Rizdal. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. Yeah, I'm Nova Safo, filling in for Kimberly Adams. Thanks for joining us, all of you out there today. Tuesday, January 30th is the day. We're talking about what's happening at Boeing today. The company's 737 MAX 9 planes are flying again after the recent door plug incident. A very scary one. Uh, Boeing's troubles go way beyond that door plug, though, don't they? They, they do indeed. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this uh, ginormous company in the American manufacturing ecosystem, this ginormous company in the American economy as a whole, and also its role in global commer- commercial aviation, uh, where it is one of two. So we're going to get Peter Robison uh, on the line to talk with us. He's an investigative reporter for Bloomberg. He's also the author of Flying Blind, the 737 MAX Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right. So, look, your book was obviously written before the latest Boeing uh, challenge. It was challenges. You were writing about the earlier two mishaps with uh, 737 Maxes, which killed something like 350 people. Let me ask you this, though. If we thought that was the fall of Boeing, isn't this really the fall of Boeing? This does, that's a that's a good point. This does feel like uh, even though people didn't die, it's uh, it's something that people are seeing in real time, and they're seeing what's been described as as incompetence or a lack of focus on on safety play out, and and in a terrifying way, in a, in a way where you can see a giant hole in the yeah. side of a plane, and uh, and 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 that being traced back to problems on Boeing's factory lines, which which should have been caught by management but weren't. How could they not be? I mean, one of the things that I, the, the developments in this story have been happening so fast ever since this accident uh, early this month, about what, four and a half weeks ago now. Um, and one of the things that I find fascinating is the response also from just the airline industry at large has been, you know, really a lot more critical than I think we've mm. perhaps heard in the past, or maybe I just haven't been paying attention. Uh, what's the difference this time, you think? Is, is, is this an inflection point for Boeing? What, what you're hearing is frustration. You're, you're hearing uh, j- just pessimism that, that Boeing has its problems sorted out. A- after the two crashes, uh, Dave Calhoun, the current CEO, pledged to put safety first. He created a safety committee on the board. And this latest incident makes clear that that wasn't enough, that, that something else has to happen. There, there, there needs to be potentially a, a shakeup of the management and a, a real return to putting safety first uh, throughout the production system. All right, so Peter, take us back. What happened to Boeing? Because this company was a global leader in aviation. It was an innovator in the American economy. It is, as I said, incredibly important to American manufacturing for all of its subcontractors and all of its influence on the larger economy. Where, where did it go off the rails? I think it's clear that the inflection point was the late 1990s, early 2000s. To that point, Boeing was the undisputed leader in commercial aerospace. It had 60% of the market. It had the top selling products in every category. Um, But it needed, it it faced a point where it needed to invest. Airbus was coming on strong as a competitor. It had uh, redesigned the A320 to be what many airlines considered a better plane to the 737. And Boeing's management had a choice then. I, I was a beat reporter covering Boeing then. And this choice played out with with uh, the engineers pushing for 
uh, a return to investment and product innovation and Wall Street pushing for uh, pushing for paying attention to shareholders and, and pushing for re- return on net assets. And it was Wall Street's argument that that won out. Hmm. Well, where does the Max? Pro- I mean, the Max program is so crucial to Boeing's future, and yet, you know, we hear quotes like the one we got on in Reuters uh, yesterday from a company CEO. Uh, the company is called AirCap. It's apparently the world's largest aircraft lesser. In an interview with Reuters, uh, its its CEO says something to the effect of. One more hmm. incident with the, with the Max line, and it's going to become a very hard sell. Can the Max recover? Um, where does it go from here? That, that's a really interesting question. And and um, as I was writing uh, my my book in twenty twenty and twenty twenty one after the crashes, uh, the parallel. I saw at the time that seemed very relevant was the McDonnell Douglas DC-10. The, the DC-10 in the early 1970s had a, a terrible crash outside Paris. Uh, 346 people were killed. E- eerily, that's the same number who were killed in the two MAX crashes. And that was the result of uh, poor design. And, and then the McDonnell Douglas leadership covered up uh, the mistakes that they had hmm. made. And Boeing, in its response to the MAX crashes, followed almost the same playbook. Boeing's, C- Boeing's former CEO blamed airlines, uh, blamed pilots, blamed for, pilots. for not... Uh, yeah, and, and and the question then became, can Boeing's reputation survive another MAX incident? And what happened with the DC-10 was that there was a third incident in Chicago uh, where a plane mm-hmm. uh, crashed on takeoff in Chicago in, in 1979, and the DC-10's reputation n- never recovered. Um, in, in this case, airlines don't have many choices. The Airbus assembly lines are sold out. Uh, you, you do see United trying to potentially maneuver to get an earlier slot on, on Airbus assembly lines. Uh, so I think what may happen is is that the Max will remain a very distant number two, and unless Boeing uh, summons the will to invest and develop a new, truly innovative aircraft, it's it's destined to remain a distant number two in this market. Got it. And, and you know, developing That's a new and innovative aircraft. Yeah, developing a new and innovative aircraft. Let's say the seven eight seven, right, with composites and all the different things that it did. That took. I'm going to say decades, but at least a decade, decade and a half, and it was expensive as hell, and and it had all kinds of problems. Yeah, that was partly problems of Boeing's own making because it tried to outsource the design to other companies, which was a complete disaster. Uh, And uh, in 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 the case of a new narrow body, people think it may cost twenty billion dollars. Uh, if you amortize that, it's, it sounds like a, a you know an eye-watering sum of money. But if you amortize it over many years, I've talked to analysts who say even Boeing, with its huge debt of forty billion, uh, could 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 afford it. It, it just huh. it's this has been the story of commercial aviation for decades. It's it's extremely risky. Companies have uh, come and gone, uh, and you you have to be willing to take those risks to stay in the market. Peter, let's say Boeing never makes another commercial airplane. Is its defense business enough to keep it around? Pro- probably. It, it's it, it's such an important contra- contractor yeah. to the uh, to the military that uh, it it would stay around. I mean, there there are a lot of uh, you know Northrop Grumman uh, has exited the commercial side. There there are companies that 
uh, were once in the commercial business who stick around in, in defense. So that, that is a, a possibility. Uh, are there candidates to enter the commercial plane market? Not, not really. Due to due to all those uh, expenses and and the, the the difficulties, the the one competitor potentially emerging, uh, which both Airbus and Boeing have to think about, is China. Uh, Comac is the uh, aviation company in China, and it's developed a, uh, a an airliner called the C nine one nine, which. Uh, as one analyst said, it 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 doubled it doubled its deliveries last year from one to two. So it's it's not uh, it, it's not a competitor on the scale of Airbus and Boeing. But I have talked to some people who say it reminds them of the early days of of Airbus when people didn't think much of of Airbus as a company. It was getting sales of ones and twos in in smaller markets. But uh, with the help of uh, especially state financing and, and uh, generous financing deals, uh, Airbus eventually uh, got a foothold. Hmm. All right. Well, Peter, uh, thank you for taking some time to break this all down with, for us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks a bunch, Peter. That's uh, yeah, Peter Robison uh, of Bloomberg and the author of Flying Blind, the 737 MAX Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing, which hopefully is not a permanent fall. Yeah, he's going to have to write in here afterward. It's the 737 yeah. MAX Tragedies. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really sad. It's, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sad for Boeing and for airlines, but it's sad for, you know, what it means for American manufacturing and innovation and leading the way, right? Indeed. And, you know, it's interesting that he uh, pointed to McDonnell Douglas. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, because, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the pilot in this conversation. <laughs> uh, the MD-80, yeah. one of the most beloved planes, actually, right? Yep. The MD-80 yep. Yep. for commercial Absolutely. pilots. Absolutely. So you really can go from a triumph to a fall totally with one design mistake. Totally can. Totally can. Yeah. Uh, All right, we want to hear from you, uh, whether you are a person who flies airplanes or a person who rides in airplanes or works on or around or uh, is at all interested in aviation. Let us know what you think about Boeing and commercial aircraft challenges and what's going to happen now about this industry. Or actually, would you fly on a 737 MAX right now? I would be interested to see what people say about that. Uh, We are at 508-827-6278. You be smart. We're coming right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Khreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're going to do some news. Nova Safo, you are it. Okay, uh, so the story uh, that... A lot of people are talking about is Neuralink, yeah. uh, Elon Musk's company, uh, conducting its first uh, operation on a human, implanting a brain implant to allow people to uh, think 
and move com a computer mouse or potentially eventually do that and uh, and kind of interact with, or with a smartphone just by thinking. You know, the part of the story that actually got that I was mo that I found most fascinating is that it's nowhere near the first company to do this, right. but because it's Musk doing it. Yeah. He has a way of getting attention for these things that uh, nobody else seems to rival. Uh, at least three other companies listed in the Wall Street Journal article I read uh, that are already well well on their way to doing something similar, which is very interesting. Yeah, it's totally interesting. And, and uh, look, this could be incredible new technology. And it is, in the, in the case of Neuralink, it's been implanted in a person with quadriplegia. And that could just open, you know, huge new possibilities for people like that, which is great. I, however, am not going to let Elon Musk put a chip in my brain. No. <laughs> I'm just I'm not. I'm sorry. I don't blame you. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know. Come on, man. That's a, yeah, that's no. a tough sell, for uh, sure. Yeah, okay. So I've got uh, two. They are uh, both uh, pieces out of the Wall Street Journal, uh, not exclusive. That just happens to be where I saw them. Um, uh, first of all, in, in piling on the wave of layoffs from big American companies of late, Apple, um, uh, uh, Microsoft, lots of companies, UPS said today it's going to cut 12,000 jobs. Also, everybody's got to be back in the office five days a week. That, that was interesting. Super interesting. Super, super interesting. That's but they're couching it as, as like, uh, you know, the people who have to show up and carry all those packages are maybe a yeah. little unhappy about old office yep. folks still working from home. Yep. Which I guess I could see a, a case to be made there. No, totally. I just, so it's, it's a one-two punch there of, of the 12,000 people and everybody's got to be back in the office. Uh, so that's out of more. But, but, but why? What? Uh, why are they? What I'm wondering is... Uh, UPS cannot possibly think that if there's a at least a dip in package deliveries that it's going to last. Well, no, What's but I, I so I think they they staffed up enormously during the goods buying craze of the pandemic, right? When we were all buying yeah. stuff for our homes. Now, as we've talked about on Marketplace a bunch of times, and you've done the reporting mm -hmm. on on the morning show. Right. We are all now buying, doing more services purchasing. And so there's fewer, um, box, fewer boxes full of stuff going places. That's yeah, what it is. Right? It's reduced and, and, and yet, and yet every corporate forecast practically, I don't want to be, I don't want to say every, but they keep underestimating I know, I know, I know. the demand, underestimating the consumer spending over and well, over well, quarter but, but, after quarter. Right. But that's because the consumer has been incredibly strong for years now. And no matter which economist you ask and you say, why are consumers so strong? And they all go, I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of amazing. Right? That's what's but it happening. It seems to me the corporate leaders are even more pessimistic than anybody think, else has been. I and that's more the part that I... I think they're more afraid. Yeah. Right? Maybe. I, I think, Less room I for think, error. Right. I think. I think they don't want to get caught with their pants down, so to speak, right? And, and, have, and be on the wrong side of the trade when things yeah. eventually, maybe someday, possibly... Probably, I don't know. <laughs> Slow down, right? I mean, look, I've been, wait long I've, been, enough. <laughs> I've been saying this for years. The consumer, how much longer can the consumer go on? And everybody's like, yeah, I don't know. And the consumer keeps going on. And keeps now, on. right? And now with inflation down, uh, you know, it came in with a two handle the other day, and the six month inflation well below two. You got to be like, consumers are, you know, prices are still elevated, but consumers are feeling pretty good. So, anyway. gee, it's amazing what happens when people have jobs. Tell you what, right? Tell you what. <laughs>
Tell you what. Uh, second thing I want to mention, and this is a, come on, a really kind of story. Yeah. I'll just read the headline out of the Wall Street Journal. A coalition of business groups sued California in an attempt to overturn a state law that would require thousands of companies to publicly report their greenhouse gas emissions. So this was signed oh by uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor out here, Democratic governor out here, uh, in October. Yep. It directs companies to calculate and disclose a range of admissions from their own operations, as well as those of their suppliers and customers. So look, I will say only this. I have no position on this lawsuit. I don't know the details of the lawsuit, but there's no way we control climate change unless businesses get on board. Indeed. And uh, talk about potentially, uh, you know, a really bad public relations oh, move. Oh, it's such a bad public relations move. Such yeah. a bad public relations move. Anyway, that's me. That's my news. Well, that's it for the news. Let's do the mailbag then. Hi, Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, we were talking last week about uh, nursing, home, nursing homes, only one nurse, uh, nursing home industry. And uh, we wanted to hear from you about your experiences with helping loved ones find long-term care. And we got this. Hello, Make Me Smart. This is Carrie from Durham, New York. My mother went into a nursing home two years ago, and I could not have done the application without the help of a Medicaid lawyer. They are worth every penny you spend on them. My mother's application literally filled a milk crate and took me months oh. to put together, and there's no way I could have done it without a lawyer. Oh, man. So wow. good luck to anyone out there doing it. It's a bear. Thanks for making me smart, and have a great day. Wow. Wow. Oh, I had no idea Medicaid lawyers were a thing. <laughs> That's true. I really that didn't. True. I that is that yeah. is infuriating. It's it's sort of like the same thing with, you know, immigration lawyers. The yep. fact that you have to have one. It's usually the yeah. people who can least afford it have to pay for almost, these almost always. services. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh man. Um all right. Well, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the make me smart question, which is I love this question by the way. What's something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from Summer Phoenix, co-founder of Stay, a new zero proof cocktail bar in Los Angeles. When conceptualizing Stay, one thing we initially thought was that offering a zero proof alternative might primarily appeal to a niche audience. Since opening stay, we've been pleasantly surprised by the broader acceptance and enthusiasm from a diverse range of guests. It's been a humbling experience to see how perspectives are evolving and how stay has become a welcoming space for not just those on a sober journey, but for anyone looking for a unique and inclusive social experience. It's a reminder that growth and learning are inherent in any venture, and we are excited to be part of a movement that is reshaping how people socialize one day at a time. Yeah, that's very cool. Good for them. Good for them. I am puzzled why they would think it would be a niche audience in Los Angeles. I grew up in L.A., <laughs> Yeah, and not to lean into a stereotype, but there's a lot of people watching their calories in L.A., <laughs> A zero-proof place true. is actually very appealing to me, I'm sure, to many people who, you know, have to really, you know, watch what they're intaking. Excellent, you know. excellent point. And, and an addendum <laughs> to those on a sober journey and those uh -huh. who just, you know, want to stay clear-headed for an evening or two. That's, I totally yeah, or, you know, have an audition in the morning, right, you know. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. 
All right. Well, we want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. And please don't send me emails. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can tell Kai, send Kai emails. Yes, send me the emails. (laughs) Send me all the emails. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseer. Alan Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program is engineered by Juan Carlos Dorado. Brian Allison is going to mix it down later. Our intern is Talia Menchaca. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez. Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodnar is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and marketplaces. Vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Neil, Neil, Neil. They call it telepathy, the Neuralink chip. Oh, is that right? I'm still not telepathy. letting Elon Musk put a chip in my no. brain. It is just not happening. What, what would he have to call it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost to splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.